Hi, I'm Nadia Cavell. I'm Ben with the Hinks. And I'm Zachary Fall. And you're listening to Migratives, the podcast championing migrant creatives in the UK. In today's episode, we speak with Rogelio Braga, a playwright, essayist, novelist, and activist from the Philippines. Rogelio talks with us about their experience of seeking asylum in the UK, shares some of the inspirations and stories behind their writing, and discusses ways that our industry can be truly inclusive. Rogelio, thank you so much for joining us on Migrators today. Thank you. I've never been into a podcast before. This is the first time. I should be enjoying this. Yeah, great. Well, we'll, um, we'll be kind, I promise. <laughs> okay. So I think it would be great to start off with hearing a little bit about your background. Mm-hmm. I know you were the first Filipino writer to seek asylum in the UK since President Duterte came to power. But We'll get to that, I think, in a minute. But first, I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about your childhood in the Philippines. Okay. um, Actually, I was born in Las Piñas City in Manila. I was born when the country was under martial law. So the president then was the former dictator, Ferdinand Marcos. So childhood, it's poverty. It was a time when there was like a widespread poverty in the country because of... um, of the political system. And I think we have a crony capitalism in the Philippines during that time when I was born. So there is the president and there are a few people who were close to him, families, so they control the economy of the country. So my family belonged to those who were not part of this system. So when I was born, my mother was, um, she was a fish vendor. And then my father He was a construction worker. So they were both migrants in Manila. So they came from different islands. So my mother was a Waray. It's an ethnic group in Central Philippines. And then my father was an Ilongo, Negrense. So they both left their respective islands and then moved to Manila and build a family there. So when I was born, my childhood basically is poverty. And then seeing my parents struggling to build a family in Quezon City and Manila. And um, we're actually poor, literally poor. And we live in a place, we call it like a squatter or like a ghetto. Um, we're going to use the word to describe the lower of the working class. And then my father left the country. So when I was like, three years old. He worked as a overseas Filipino worker. That's what we call it then. He worked in the Middle East as a construction worker. So I grew up actually with my mother and my aunt and my father is abroad. I can only hear him talking through the phone or through the mails or to the remittances that he sent to us. So life actually changed a little bit in 1986 after the revolution, there was a people power revolution when the Marcuses were overthrown by the people power revolt. And um, there was quite a change in our house. Like, for example, we used to live in a, in a dilapidated house and then suddenly it became concrete. And then we have a corrugated iron roof and then suddenly we can go to school. And it's a transition. I mean, at this point, whenever I look at my childhood, 
I witnessed the transition of one ruling class replacing another, and then we still remain as what we are, except for the quite few changes in our in our life. So that was my childhood, and I basically worked when I was a child. So my first paid job, I think I was seven years old. So I work as a fish vendor with my mother. So I sell fish in the market. <laughs> and my mother would like me to become a fish vendor. But I had a problem. I remember this. I had a problem with fraction. So I, I have a hard time reading fraction. Like, And then my father can't send me to the construction work because, you know, I'm very soft. And then they told me that I have beautiful sets of fingers. So, <laughs> so I think it was nine years old or eight years old, I can still remember a conversation when they decided, because I have no use in the family. I can't be, you know, trusted in the store. I can't be sent to uh, the construction work. So they'd rather send me to school so that I have a use in the family. So I can remember the conversation. So it was a very happy childhood. It was poverty, but happy. And we were a decent family. Both parents are working. And uh, we have uh, relatives who supported us and have friends that we played. And of course, you know that it's not normal because of this kind of poverty that really degrades people in my country. Do you have um, any brothers and sisters? Oh, yes. I have five siblings. So I'm the eldest. And um, because in the Philippines, we have a culture that like, you know, the eldest is next to the parents. So when my father died when I was 18 years old, I became basically the father of the family. So uh, I helped my mom to send all my siblings to school and to the university until I think seven years ago when the youngest actually married and then had a child. So I, you know, okay, so it's time that I should should stop, you know, uh, supporting the family. And growing up, were you sort of, you've mentioned that you were growing up in poverty. Was poverty as a concept something you were aware of? I mean, were you able to see different ways of living up close? And was it something that informed you from an early age? If you're actually from Manila or if you visited Manila, you will see that the city is a city of contrast. So you can see there, like there is a place where there is a gated subdivision and after that gate on the other side, there is like uh, the informal settlers, the squatters. And then as a child or as a Filipino, I think this is all the Filipinos, you know, I saw it Yeah, growing up that there is like a disparity in my country, in our society. And then there is really the poor, the poorest of the poor, the rich, you know, the super rich in, in, in my country. So growing up, I witnessed all these I think, abnormal things in my country. And plus the personal experience. Like when I was young, like there were times that we don't have something on the table for the dinner. I have to grow up without a father. And then I have neighbors who, when their children, they're they're sick, they just let the child die because they cannot access the hospital. But on the other hand, when you watch a television, you'll see famous actors 
educated people, like, you know, uh, having this kind of life. So it's really, the contrast is so strong and you can see it and you grow up with it. And then when I was in high school, they sent me to a private school, my parents, despite of our like situation. And then my aunts from my father's side helped my family. So it's a private high school. And then there I saw that there were really children of my age that they have privileges. And then their parents were born from the middle class or the upper middle class. They're different from me. And uh, I think that's part of my education as a young Filipino, that there is a poverty and it's a debasing form of poverty because it is a structural. Mm. And you said you were a sort of father figure for your sibling. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you said that you were too soft to do the construction work yeah. and not good at fractions for the fish selling. How did your parents react to that? Were they just like, you are as you are and you can go to school and learn? Or was there any disappointment there? I um, This is my reading because, you know, among my siblings, I mean, among you know, all their children, I'm the one who actually like reading. And I think they saw that I have this penchant for studies. Mm -hmm. And one way for me to be able to help the family is to finish my university degree, find work, and then get a job, Mm -hmm. and then help the family. So you know that this is the traditional, you know, Asian thing. (laughs) You have to get a degree in the university in Manila, and then you can get a job. And this is your salary and help the family and then help your siblings. So I think that's my role in my family. Yeah. So when my father died when I was 18, I was still in the university. And I was supposed to actually proceed to law. Right. But I stopped. Yeah. So because I have to uh, start working at the age of 19 mm-hmm. to help my mother to send my siblings to universities and to school. So I think I performed my obligation to my family well. Yeah. You've spoken a little bit about the the value of education there. At what point in this journey did you develop an interest or a passion in writing? And how was that received by your family? I think the writing came late. I started with reading. And I, I remember when I was like 10 years old, I started to read English books, the Reader's Digest. My paternal grandfather used to live with us and he loved reading and he loved everything about Hollywood, everything about America and the the West basically. And then I developed an interest in reading English and reading books. I remember when I was um, like eight years old, I received this gift. It's an Oxford pictorial dictionary. And then I had it exchanged with a classmate who has a, a return of the Jedi comics and then there's a, a small comics about the western philosophy like you know there's a socrates aristotle plato and then they're in a comics so he exchanges with my oxford pictorial dictionary and then i i develop an interest in western philosophers so i started with reading and i think i read the communist manifesto when i was 12 to 13 years old wow. because of that comics mm-hmm. because you know there's yeah. marks about workers John Paul Sartre. Oh, okay, this is interesting. I want to be like this. <laughs> I'm interested with communism. So I saw the 
several passages from Communist Manifesto. And then I bought a book using the, my, my salary when I was like a fish vendor. And then, yeah, so I will be a communist. The reading and interest with ideas came first. And then the writing started when I was like 14 years old and like in high school, my first year high school. So we have like activities in school. We have to write a poem. We have to write a play, a skit. So I volunteered writing poem, writing skits. And my family, they don't have interest in writing. <laughs> they don't have interest in art. I mean, like until now, my mother hasn't seen any of my plays and she can't understand what's going on. <laughs> and uh, no, they're not really into arts. I remember when I was like 18 years old in the university, I joined this, um, it's a prestigious literary contest for university students. And in that contest, I won like three awards for poetry, for fiction, and then for children's fiction. And then when I told my mother about it, and the first question is how much? Like, <laughs> how much are you getting for? Uh, she doesn't really care about the the medals, you know, the prestige. So it, that's how they look at it. Yeah. So I know that the political situation in the Philippines changed in 2016. Very and... much, yeah. In particular, a series of extrajudicial killings sweeping across the country, which have been condemned by dozens of organizations across the world, including Amnesty, the Campaign for Human Rights in the Philippines and even the UN. Could you tell us a little bit about what it was like for you in the Philippines at that time? It was 2016. I can still remember. And um, how should I describe this? Like, there were killings, like every day, literally, like plural killings. You know how you talk about Brexit here in the UK? It's like every day, like you see it in, on television. The next day you read it in a newspaper. You hear it in a conversation. You hear gunshots at night because I live in a place in Manila, in Quezon City. There were several instances of killings, extrajudicial killing as police operations. It was every day, every night. It's not an exaggeration. It's like every day there was a counting. Like for this day, 1,000 people killed and the next day compounding. It's like, okay, every day we're counting how many people were killed in the police, quote-unquote, legitimate operations and extrajudicial killings. And uh, it's being done in different ways. Like, for example, in the news, you'll see someone being put in a sack or shot at close range. You see the body in the middle of the road. And these roads were familiar to you in the city, usually in Manila, across the country. So living... It, it was shocking, actually, because I never experienced it in my life. You know, in, in the Philippines, every day there is a part of the news called police report. And the police report is always about killings or crime, petty, or a massacre of a family. But this is something very different because it's like a widespread, a nationwide, it was a spectacle. And the tragedy of it is that People approved it. Oh. Yes. You know, they love the president. He was a populist president. And the war on drugs was accepted 
and still being accepted, you know, by the people and applauded. And um, on the personal level, you started to question relationships with people. Suddenly, the people that you grew up with, you know, classmates in the universities, people that you work with in several projects, you know that you are always in the same position in a particular political issue. Suddenly, they are approve of the president, approve of the killings. And it was very, very sad and depressing in a way because I have to like cut relationships because it's no longer differences in political positions. It was already a moral issue, like differences on how we look at a human being because, I mean, how can you say you're okay with the killings Mm. that the president will actually be better than Hitler. He said that on national television, if Hitler killed 5 million, he will kill more. Oh my God. On a national television. And he said that he will kill the drug addicts, drug pushers, the human rights activists, even the journalists, like kill. And people applauded it. Filipinos accepted it. And a country where you spend most of your life you know, believing that you're writing, you can help at least change, you know, your country. And suddenly, oh my God, was I writing plays, telling stories to a country that actually can kill their own kind, fellow Filipinos. So unfortunately, at this point, while we are still talking, the killing continues. So that's how it was like living in the Philippines in 2016 to 2018. And I mean, I'm not talking here of like of the harassment that I received as a playwright, as a writer in the Philippines. And it was really like <laughs> traumatic experience. But, you know, like, for example, in 2017, it was really hard for us to perform plays because my, most of my plays, I, I always consider my work as political plays, meaning that it addresses a specific problem in the society and I am expecting at least a specific response from the audience. And this particular response should end up at least in a political action that can change the political system. So that's why I call my play as a political play. I've been doing this since 2005 or six, but suddenly in 2016, it was very hard for us. It was a struggle. Like in 2017, like I received like death threats. I've never received such number of death threats in my life like sometime in january or february in 2017 while i was doing a research in thailand i was in another place and i received calls from messenger facebook messenger threatening me you know you're 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 gay and you go back you know we'll kill you at something and then it happened again in september that year september october that you received calls to your phone number like phone number (laughs) it's no longer in a social media but phone number is calling you so we're we're supposed to have um in 2017 i had a play ang mga maharlika the aristocrats in english we're supposed to tour it in several venues in metro manila but it was stopped suddenly because i received a death threat and all the actors were receiving death threats and then there was a mass reporting of our social media so we decided for the security of everyone, including the actors, 
let's stop the play because it was like if you speak against the president or critical to the regime you will receive this kind of treatment and i always accuse it's the philippine police and the military mm. so that's how it was like in the philippines before i left in 2018 and unfortunately it's worse now <laughs> it's so it's worse now in the philippines wow Rogelio, I can only imagine the trauma and fear you you lived with daily during that time. Did it did it affect the way you led your daily life? You know, that's a very that's a very good question because I only realized that Nadia when I was here in London, and I always tell this to people. You know, it happened to me February two thousand and eighteen. Every day I wake up. Just to sleep again, <laughs> you know. I wake up and then I go to my sofa and then stay there the whole day. I will only go out if I need to go to the university for my class or to buy something. I'm always inside the house. I never talk to anybody, but you know, in social media, I'm very normal. Yeah. And then sometime in May that year, I'm closing the windows also, and then my mother is asking my neighbor to bring me food. And then I can't sleep at night, and when I wake up at 10 a.m. in the morning, you know I'm spending the day like in the sofa looking at the ceiling, and I only realized that there was something wrong with me when I came here in the UK in London. Like I only learned that it's not normal when you encounter people shocked with the story. I only realized the things when I was here. I saw the difference, and then you can see it from a different vantage. Point that this is what's happening in the Philippines. Yeah. God, you survive this yeah. because the thing is, if you are from the outside, like here in the West, for example, in the UK, your idea of what's happening in the Philippines is what you see in the mainstream. For example, the ABS-CBN. It's like the BBC here in the UK. It was shut down by the regime last year, so that's what you see. But if you go deeper. To what's happening in the Philippines, like the experiences, for example, like me, an independent writer, an independent publisher, and writers writing in the regions outside Manila or outside the literary establishment, you will actually see there the violence, and nobody is actually talking about this until recently. Like, just to give you an example, like right now there are three political prisoners in the Philippines, and All of them are theater people, like Amanda Echanes, Alvin Fortaleza, and Cherry Catologo. They are members of theater groups, and then there are a political prisoners because they've been picked up by the police or the military, sent to jail, and then they were branded as terrorists. Oh God! Wow. And you don't hear this on mainstream media. And this, you can say, at least they were jailed because what happened to Marlon Maldos in 2020? Marlon, he was the artistic director of a community theater in Bohol. It's a beautiful island in Central Philippines. He was shot dead, extrajudicial killing. And you can only hear this news if you really go down to the community, the people talking in the native language, because mm. if you will read their names in newspaper. They are activists. They are communists. They are armed rebels. But among us, you know, in the Philippines, we know th- these are community theater makers. Wow. 
I think there's so much about what's going on over there that we just don't hear about over here at all. And as you alluded to, it's sort of summarised in a couple of lines on the news with a couple of names. But there is so much to everyday life that I think most of us are completely unaware of. I wanted to speak briefly about you coming to London. I know you came here to study in 2018. Yes. What drew you to London and to your course in particular? Okay, so I came here as a Chevening Scholar. It's a government scholarship program. So I arrived in the UK as a British government scholar. Until now, I have an interest with nationalist tensions and ethnic conflicts in the Southern Philippines and in Southeast Asia. So when I read the announcement that the British Embassy in Manila is, you know, opening the Shivening Scholarship for that year, I submitted my application. That particular scholarship, they require that you have to pass in three universities in the UK. So you have to apply in three universities. And then unfortunately, like Birkbeck in London is the only university that offer this kind of course. It's very specific, nationalism and ethnic conflict. So I applied in Perkback and then I got in. So I came here in this country. I mean, we're supposed to be here for about 10 to 12 months only. <laughs> so <laughs> fortunately, I'm going to be here indefinitely uh, there. <laughs> so before I left, actually, I still have my place there. And then I have 13 cats. I have my books there. Sorry, um, 13 cats. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I love cats. So I have 13 cats. I have books. And then I have my theater company and I have my publishing house, small publishing house. So I will just be gone for about 10 months. Mm. So, and then if I return, I have an education from this country. And then, and then I, I can't return. So there. Yeah. That's life. Wow. Yeah. Mm. I know that, as you alluded to, you sought um, asylum in the UK the year after you arrived. Could you tell us a little bit about that process? It was never part of my plan, you know, because our scholarship, it's like a contract that we signed it and then we have to return to the country and then stay there for two years, like return service, they call it. Otherwise, you return all the money that was used for your education, if ever that we can't return to our country, we need to move to a third country. So that's in our contract. So I'm not going to do the details, but in January 2019, I had a security issue and I can no longer return to the Philippines. So I was really bothered here in London and with my studies. And where should I go? Because I can't go home. And I still have my things and my place and my class back home. So I was thinking of moving to another country, like Thailand was one of my options because it's closer to the Philippines and I have research work in Thailand also. And then I tried to apply in universities in Berlin and New Zealand. So unfortunately, I wasn't able to get PhD research posts in these two universities. And then I wasn't able to secure work in Thailand if I move there after my contract here and my visa is about to expire like in five months or four months and then I was reading about seeking an asylum but because here in this country there is a stigma to asylum seekers and 
I don't want to be subjected to that kind of, <laughs> you know, uh, treatment mm -hmm. from people in this country and in this government. But I had no choice. So I spent two weeks reading the Home Office page on seeking protection in this country. And then I called the number and then I was screened in Kent and Dover. It was really, really, I don't know how, it was so scary and it was so embarrassing. Embarrassing because I was always thinking of the stigma attached to being an asylum in this country. But I have no choice because I can't go back home. So it's either you swallow the embarrassment or you go home and die or go home and be in prison. So I went there to Dover and I was with another Filipino from the Kanlungan Filipino Consortium. We went there like 10 a.m. and then it's a very dark place. <laughs> I don't know. It's near the port. And then suddenly like in the afternoon, we were surrounded by a lot of people who can't even speak English, and I was screened. And then we waited for about two hours for the decision. And then the decision was, okay, so your asylum is valid, but you're going to have another interview. And then I was so relieved that time. And then walking home, I asked the person who went with me, why did you come with me, you know? And he told me, because, you know, there is a possibility that they're going to detain you, oh. <laughs> to detain me in Kent. So oh. at least you are with someone who can actually work on something for the bail so that they're not going to detain you. That's why the organization sent him with me. Right. So, oh, oh my God. <laughs> and why did you not tell me about this? He doesn't want to tell me about that because he doesn't want me to be scared and yeah. just relax during the screening interview. And then I was supposed to have a, a substantive interview. This is the most important interview last March. But, you know, the lockdown happened. So it was move again last November and it was like five and a half hours. Oh my goodness. But you know, Nadia, they told me that's not normal because usually it lasts for nine hours to two days. Oh my god. Yeah, so I think it's shorter because I can speak the language. Yeah. And I know what to do. You know, I would just have to tell the home office this is what happened and we already send all the necessary documents. And I can speak the language. So it's five and a half hours retelling what happened to you, the trauma and all that. So I think the asylum process, to be honest, it's as a structure, as a process, it is actually okay. But the politics behind it and the hatred of the people to migrants and asylum seekers, I think that's the problem. Mm -hmm. And of course, I always tell people that my story is not the real story of asylum seeking in the UK because there are people who were in barracks. There were asylum seekers who can't work and then they're living like $5 a day. Mm. So some of them are also committing suicide or dying in destitution in this country. So my story is not uh, really the the usual story of an asylum seeker in this country. So I hope it will change. I hope that people in this country will see, you know, what's really happening and remove the stigma and the hatred against migrants in this country so that everything will work properly. 
Do you feel the stigma, Rogelio? Do you feel the weight of it yourself? Yes, except that I know how to handle it. Right. Because I think one is I can speak the language and then I have a proper education on what's going on in an asylum system. Mm-hmm. And I have this tool to understand what's going on in this country, this culture of xenophobia, the racism. I know what's happening at least. And I participate in the conversation. So at least I was protected, you know, by this privileges. Right. And I think I felt it and I can still feel it, you know, through my experience, very, very specific experiences. But at least I know how to handle it and protect myself from it. Amazing. Very much an inspiration. Well, let us get on to your professional life in more detail. So you're a prolific writer, if I can say, working across different forms. You've had two novels published, a collection of short stories, a book of plays, as well as critical essays. Do you have a preferred form of writing or do you find that some of them come more naturally to you than others? My first love is writing fiction. And writing for the stage, it was more like an accident in my early 20s. I was studying, I mean, self-study on how to write, you know, compelling dialogues for my short stories. So I, you know, I joined a playwrights group in Manila. It's starting in 2003, and then I ended up being with them until 2014. So I love writing stories. That's my first love. But I find it easier, not easy, but, you know, compared with other form, the right place than writing uh, stories. Because, like, if I write a short story or a long form, like a novel, the form demands a sustained interest to the story, to the project. Mm -hmm. And it demands also, like, a a routine, a daily routine. Mm -hmm. So every day you should be writing the story, writing parts of the novel. And, like, in the play... I can collapse the entire story and write the, the 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 scenes in different days, and then after two weeks, okay, I have a play. <laughs> so, yeah. so something like that. So, and, and process. Yeah. So, so there is it's easier. It was easier for me to write always a play than compared to writing fiction. And please correct me if I get the pronunciation wrong, but your debut novel, Colon, Colon. is that right? Yes. Colon yes, yes. was the first novel published by. Balangigia Press in yep. 2016, which you founded and which has published several authors since. Yes. It is in Tagalog and it centers on a female protagonist, Belsilda, mm-hmm. who ventures out of the confines of her humdrum life on a quest for answers about her past, a past which is intimately linked to the decades long conflict between the Muslim Moro people and the Christian Filipinos. Can you tell us about the challenges you face, not only in writing your first novel, which is hard enough, but also in tackling such a dark chapter of your country's history, all while setting up your own publishing company to make sure your story was told? Uh, It was very challenging, Nadia. So I think I'm the only Filipino writer and a playwright who actually explored that conflict in Southern Philippines, you know, in the mainstream. So Colon is on the same theme of the narration of a nation from someone who was uh, the main character. She was a child from the place in Southern Philippines called Manili. It's a small community 
in Mindanao in sometime in the early 70s, they massacred the entire, they meaning my government, soldiers, yeah. massacred the entire Muslim community. And then they used a paramilitary Christian group also from the area together with the military and this paramilitary called Ilaga, meaning rats. They massacred the entire community and um, there should be a trigger warning on this conversation. So how they do it. So they remove the ears of a Muslim man oh. and the nipples of a Muslim woman, just a, a booty. So that's how they do it. Uh, it's all, yeah, it's a time of Marcos, but it's not included in our curriculum. They were all silenced, you know, edited, remove it. So me, the curious cat, <laughs> I went there in 2013, Manila, and then I interviewed the survivors, and they're still there. And then they told me that, you know, during the massacre in the early 70s, they found only one child, an infant, crying inside the mosque, the survivor, because they asked all the women and the children to enter the mosque, because the men are in the fields. It was morning, the massacre done in the morning. So they threw a lot of grenades inside the mosque while the women and old and children oh it's an urban legend for them you know because they want to make sure that there's hope so yeah. from that infant the story of the infant i wrote colon so that's the main character of the story and then she traveled back to her past and uh, at this point i'm so happy because people are still reading colon in the philippines uh, right now i read in a review that its distribution was limited and it was only being sold by a few independent bookshops as well as university student clandestinely. Yes, yes. Is that obviously part of the censorship problem? Not exactly. It was a part of the literary landscape in the Philippines. Writing independently, publishing independently is a political decision in the Philippines, meaning mm-hmm. you are actually challenging the literary establishment of the country controlled by you people. And most of them are really like fans of the current regime now. So that's our distribution of the books. And then students are actually selling it and then they get something from it until I was able to broke a partnership with a mainstream bookstore so that we were able to deliver books across the country. But last year, during the lockdown, we decided to give the PDF of the book mm. to everyone. I mean, this is an independent publishing, you know. We're not really a capitalist, <laughs> you know, driven by money. And then, so we allowed people to get the PDF version of the book so that they can read it while they are in a lockdown. So right now, it's being taught in school and in universities because it's accessible to everyone. That's wonderful that it's had such a journey. And you touched on this as well already. You founded your own theater company, Tisa, isn't that right? Yes, yes. It means Teatro ng Timog Silangang Asia. Uh, mm-hmm. In English, it's a theater of Southeast Asia. So we started it like 2017. Yeah, right? and then uh, we had several productions and then workshops. So it was patterned from, because I used to be a fellow of the Asian Cultural Council, and I did some research endeavors in Southeast Asia. So I envisioned it to be a research-driven theater company. 
So unfortunately, when I left the country, it was closed, you know, because I am not there physically. I have to be there to continue the operation. And like the publishing house, you know, I can do it like online, remotely. But the theater company, you have to be there. Of course. And obviously things changed from 2016 onward. But what place does theater and the playwright hold in the Philippines, at least when you started out? writing for stage? Well, as I read the history of uh, or the tradition of theater in the Philippines, it's really political because we have a tradition of resistance theater since the Mm -hmm. American period. Our theaters were being censored, especially during the American period and the Japanese occupation of the country. Even the time of martial law of the former dictator Marcos. So we used the street For our theater performances, there were theater performances inside the rebel camps, you know, in the mountains, in rallies. See, it's part of our lives. And the playwright, it's a figure in the theater. So I joined this group of playwrights. I remember one of our senior playwrights, a well-respected playwright in my country, told us that theater is a playwright's medium and actors and directors should be able to deliver the vision of your play on stage. And I grew up in this kind of environment where playwrights are being respected as a part of the theater community. However... As a community in the Philippines, especially in Manila, there are gatekeepers. And these gatekeepers, I always disagree with them. And sometime, I think it started in 2010 that I started to have, a, how should I say this, a very not so pleasant <laughs> relationship, both in the literary and the theater communities in the Philippines or in Manila, to be specific, in the establishment when it comes to access to resources and on how to tell the story on politics down to aesthetics. So I have really issues with them. So I, you know, sometime in 2015, I really decided that I'm not going to share or beg for spaces with them or resources, I will create my own. And if they're in a particular place like Manila, I'll move outside of Manila as far as I can reach. (laughs) I'll bloom, bloom wherever I'm planted. Of course. And was it mainly because of your more radical approach to subject matter, especially the themes, the subjects you were tackling? Yes, because I will never participate in nationalism, you know, in the construction of a homogeneous Filipino nation. Right. So that's one. And the second is I'm very curious about aesthetics outside the establishment. I'm talking of the literary and the theater establishment. I think there is something beyond what they're producing because they all sound the same. You know, you talk to the same people, you're you're friends with the director, the producer, down to the reviewers. It's like a inbreeding. (laughs) And I don't want to be part of that. The world is so huge, I think. And it proved to be true because, you know, we are a small country, an archipelago, there's a lot of stories still untold until now. So I'm more curious about that. So I have to abandon them and protect myself from their attacks. (laughs) I think you did really well to do that. You did really well. 
And in 2020, you were selected to take part in the New Earth Professional Writers Program. With them, you have been developing your first play entirely in English, Miss Philippines, which tells the story of a slum community in Manila struggling to mount a gay beauty pageant in the middle of Duarte's war on drugs. A short version of it was screened as part of New Earth's New Stories Digital Short Play Festival. So how was your experience working with the New Earth? How's it been so far? And what was it like seeing your work performed fully in English for the first time? I was really scared. Yeah? (laughs) Yes, because I had a play in the Philippines that was translated to English. But this one, (laughs) it's something that I wrote like straight English, like, you know, in my second language. I was really scared because you're writing English and then you're inviting the English, English people. I mean, oh my God, how are they going to receive my work mm-hmm. and my language and the story that I'm going to tell them? And New Earth actually guided me. New Earth is really a God's gift to me. They were calling for, they call it the Professional Writers Program. So right. they're calling people with Southeast and East Asian heritage, British, Southeast Asia. So submit a place and a proposal for a play and then provided that you belong to the British Southeast and East Asian community. And then you have a right to work and live in the UK. So that's their rule. And then I wrote them an email before I submit. I told them that I'm actually from the Philippines and Southeast Asian, but I thought that I don't have a right to work because I'm an asylum seeker, but I'm a playwright. If you will accept me, I will just, you know, sit in in the workshop that will run for about a month. And Mm -hmm. then, lo and behold, they accepted my application. And then they allowed me to sit in a month-long workshop to develop our proposal. And then they will choose four plays from that 17. So they chose my play. Despite of my migration status, I'm an asylum seeker. Mm -hmm. They opened the doors for me. And then during the workshop, I was asking Yellow Earth, uh, can you guide me? Because, you know, in the Philippines, I know my audience. I know my community. I know what stories and how to tell stories and then gather my audience to watch my play. But here it's a different environment. It's a different landscape. So they guided me, actually, and then attended workshops, conversations. I have a lot of questions and they answered So it it was a very welcoming theater organization. I really love working with them. So right now, I'm developing the play, Miss Philippines, into a full-length play. And um, I am very excited. And then the executive director, Kumiko Mendel, told me in an email that because it was shown in a short play festival last October, I think the play got the most number of views. And I'm so happy. Happy in a way, sad because... I I got messages from friends and collaborators in the Philippines that let's have it here, but we're really scared. (laughs) So sad in a way that I I can't have this play in my country, something like that. You are also, well, an academic and an activist, as well as pursuing a PhD at Burbeck. You are also the project manager for the Kaluan Filipino Consortium and co-chairing Status for Now All Network a coalition of migrant organizations, community groups, and labor unions asking for regularization of all undocumented migrants and those in the legal process living in the UK today. You also volunteer for the UK campaigns for human rights in the Philippines. 
So we already talked about how prolific you are, and I just marvel at how you juggle all of these roles. Yes, I, I do a lot of things. My PhD uh, at Birkbeck, actually, it's a practice-based PhD, a novel. Right. And writing that novel, I have to conduct workshops in the community to gather the narratives of Filipino migrants in the UK. Okay. All my activities they are connected with each other. Mm-hmm. All the output of one activity is related to the output of another activity. So how do you envision the future of your career? I mean, do you hope to eventually return to the Philippines and resume your work there? Do you think that will be possible at some point? Uh, you know what, Nadia, for my sanity and for my mental health, I have to accept that I can no longer return to my country. Yeah. I mean, I cannot be there physically because this is actually the source of my anxiety. And I don't know if it is clinical depression because I still have hope that, you know, I can return to my country and continue my life, regain the life that was taken away from me by this regime. Yeah. I have a five-year plan for my writing. Yeah. I think migrants like us, our status is always provisional. Mm. So any moment we can ask to leave this country or something else or stay here indefinitely, we don't really know because of the hostile policy of the government. Mm. So I have a five-year plan for my writing and my output. Yeah, But where is it going to produce it? I am not really sure, you know. What Mm -hmm. is sure is that every day, I'm here in London. Tomorrow, I might be here. Yeah. <laughs> so there. <laughs> yeah, step by step. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, to carry on on that, what's your experience been like overall with the industry here? So far, like with my engagement with the New Earth Theater, because it's a theater with a very diverse members, I'm happy with the spaces that they're providing me and then providing the spaces that they can provide to my community, like the migrant Filipinos or the Southeast Asian migrants. And so far, I think I am fortunate because I choose the space that I would like to go. And I developed this, I think, a survival skill since I arrived here, that there are white spaces in this country. And you are not supposed to go to these white spaces. So for me, as a person of color and as a migrant, I developed this skill that, for example, if I'm going to apply for a particular project or a funding opportunities or a call for submission, I have to check first the organization. Who are the people running it? Mm-hmm. Who are the previous winners or uh, previous fellows or something? Or what kind of plays that they are producing or what kind of stories that they are publishing or, you know, writers. A majority of them, like, for example, are white. I don't go to such spaces because I think it's a culture in this country that people of color and migrants like me, there are certain spaces where we're not supposed to go to. Mm-hmm. So for my own survival, and I have to make sure that I use this to my own advantage, is I have to know what are those spaces and how to navigate the kind of structure in this society. Right. Mm-hmm. And you said that the UK policies are quite hostile. So 
What has your experience been here of the UK as a whole, generally as a society? Actually, it's not quite hostile. It is actually hostile. <laughs> the name of the policy is Hostile Environment Policy. In 2012, it was Theresa May who was the Secretary of the Home Office, and then the goal of the hostile environment is to make the the environment hostile. That's the actual name of the policy. That's the actual name of the policy, literally. And that particular policy creates institutions. It creates a language. It creates certain kinds of relationships. That are hostile to migrants. It basically criminalizes migrants and migration. So the goal is, because the environment is so hostile, I will be the one who will leave the country voluntarily. Right. Like I listened to your previous podcasts with other artists. So, for example, the hostile environment is not just for the I don't use the word illegal undocumented migrants, asylum seekers, but also with people. Who have a regular migration status, mm -hmm. like for example, you have to renew your visa, but you have to have this amount of money, mm. yeah. and then you don't have that money, so you become undocumented. Yeah. You want to get someone you love from abroad to come here with you as a spouse, but your salary is supposed to be like this, and then you have to pay for the NHS surcharge. Times number of years and how many children do you have? Sometimes it will run like five thousand pounds for a visa. Mm. So mm. there are a lot of people here from the regular migration. They ended up undocumented migrants, and like for example, if you apply for a job or rent a place, mm. um, it is expected for the landlord for your employer. To ask your migration status, so meaning the policing of the migrants, they were delegated to the citizens. So the citizen became the police of the migrants. So basically, it creates a relationship, a language, or an environment that is hostile to migrants. It's a very insidious way to do it, isn't it? To create basically an environment that is meant to discourage migrants. Yes, exactly. And right now, like for example, the lockdown with the COVID, there are like 800 to I think to 1.2 million undocumented migrants living in the UK, and some of them are dying inside the house because they don't want to go to the doctor because they're afraid that the doctor will report them to the home office.、Mm -hmm. They will never get a vaccine. Undocumented migrant will never get a vaccine because they are afraid to reach out for the doctor. So it's a cycle, and some of them are dying inside their house. And、uh, living in a house like in one room, six of them because they cannot rent a house because、mm -hmm. they don't have a status. So it's very weird for this country. And since I was a child in the Philippines, I'm reading like you know British literature. I'm really fond of British novels, Victorian novels, and pop culture. And I never expected that when I start to live here that okay, so this is the culture of the people here, and <laughs> the intolerance actually, and the suspicion. To migrants and people of color, is really like it's it's a violence in a way. But I'm always optimistic that I think someday the people will will realize that there is something wrong with this kind of policies and this kind of society that the government is trying to build for its own people. Mm, for sure, and I mean, in recent years there have been pushes for more. Inclusivity, well, especially within industries, but、mm -hmm. 
Is that something you see having an effect? Do you feel that is making a difference? Do you see people making more of an effort? I see efforts. I see a lot of efforts and communities are being built. I mean, within the industry to challenge this exclusivity, I guess, and then to open more spaces for other cultures or other voices. But I think the problem is how the industry despite of its like goal of being you know to be diverse mm-hmm. the industry is adhering to the hostile environment policy meaning like a theater company will never hire an actor who doesn't have a paper mm-hmm. you know they are undocumented migrants for example as in my community the east and southeast asians migrants living in london there are undocumented migrants who moonlight as performers and uh, in community uh, theaters or in bars. And I think that's something that the industry or people in the industry should sit down and talk about this and how the industry will treat, should treat undocumented migrants or those people in the legal process who would like to be part of the community. And I think because we can never be diverse as we want it to be, you know, mm-hmm. until... We open our doors to the most vulnerable members of our communities. And right now, I think the most really vulnerable people in this country are the undocumented migrants and those who are in the legal process who would like to be part of the industry. I mean, I'm fortunate that, you know, there there is New Earth Theater and then there is like people I know and I can speak the language and I have a skill. So I was easily accepted in the community. But how about those, you know, other theater makers that they have skills and they have dreams, but because of their migration status, they cannot, you know, work in a theater company or participate in a workshop that is only open to those who have regular migration status in the UK. Right. And I think what is admirable, I think, to the culture of the people here that I have observed is, you know, that there is a culture of fairness and transparency. Mm -hmm. There is always this culture that you have to be fair and you have to be transparent. And I think that is something that I see in my interactions with English people, because I'm here always in London, here in in, in England. And it's a culture of, of fairness, always to be fair, or a struggle to be fair and struggle to be transparent, which is something very new to me coming from a country where, you know, we have a very different culture, weird government and institutions. So I think that's a very admirable thing about this country uh, that I have observed. And you've touched on this a little bit already, but obviously through the COVID-19 pandemic, there's been a huge impact and a huge change in Mm -hmm. our daily life. So you mentioned you're working at a charity, but could you tell us more about this charity and what other impacts the pandemic has had on you? Oh, yes. The charity is called Kanlungan Filipino Consortium. So we provide services to Filipino migrants living in the UK. And most of these migrants, they were nurses or undocumented migrants are victims of modern-day slavery. There's a lot of, especially Mm -hmm. in London, you know, in areas where you see wealthy people are actually living. Mm -hmm. So with the COVID-19, since last year, we received like 
aside from nurses dying inside the NHS hospital, we receive a lot of calls for help. And of course, what we do is we organize them so that it's easier for us to send the help and I mean, help themselves as a community. So we're organizing a community, uh, especially now with the COVID-19 pandemic. And for me as a playwright, because I, I live in a house, I shared a house with a 74-year-old woman. I call it La Casa Bernarda Alba. <laughs> uh, yes, because, you know, a spinster and then... Or <laughs> so... And, <laughs> And then no visitors allowed. So we're really like very, very strict when it comes to lockdown. Like we're strict with the social distancing. Of course, yeah. uh, so to be honest with you, I'm spending like 22 hours inside my room. And the two hours in the kitchen, probably in the bathroom. So I don't go out. So I made the most, you know, of the situation. Mm. And um, I attended workshops, both writing and playwriting I mean, I'm attending since last year, January, um, mm. online, <laughs> and then yeah. produce plays and short stories, and then thirty thousand words from my novel. Enter the PhD course at Birkbeck during the lockdown. We we have to stay home, and this is going to be, I think, for long until the end of the year. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. It's actually, you know, if you're familiar with the SWOT analysis, this is actually a, a threat and a weakness. And the goal is to convert it into strength and opportunities. So what opportunities can you get staying inside this room for 24 hours every day? Mm. I think that's the mindset. Yeah, it's not always easy during this lockdown to keep that kind of activity up. So yeah, very well done. Well, my next question is on the concept of home. Now, I realize this might be perhaps a little sensitive for you because of all the experiences you just talked about, but what does home currently mean to you? I think home for me right now is the place that can protect me. Mm. I think that's very important. And I have to, you know, tell that to myself every day. Home is the place, the people who can actually protect me and fortunately, you know, I'm here in New Cross Gate in London, in the UK. And this is home for me at this point because this country is protecting me. And then the people of this country is actually protecting me from my government. And then where people will listen to my story, meaning on stage and what I'm writing, um, I think that that's home for me. Yeah. <laughs> It's beautiful. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, what is your relationship with your family now that you're here? How do you stay in touch? Yeah. Well, I'm embarrassed with my family. <laughs> That's one because of what happened. And um I am embarrassed, you know, because of the trouble of this trouble <laughs> with uh, it's in the national newspaper several months ago, and then they read it at shared country that there is a playwright, but I am in a, here as an asylum seeker. So, oh, really? Yeah, it's, um, I don't know, but I still get in touch with them every day. Mm-hmm. And the good thing is, that, you know, I don't have a spouse and I don't have children except for my cats. And right. they're, they're, very taking, but they're being taken care of now. So, okay. yeah. So I'm in contact with my family, but, you know, I still have this feeling that, oh my God, I'm so sorry for all this trouble. And, uh, this too shall pass. <laughs> there. Yes. 
Well, I'm, I'm sorry that it's been so hard for you, that there's this sense of shame that, you, that you've talked about several times. I think it's, uh, well, from just listening to you, I, I think it's very admirable and very brave, everything you've been through and being able to carry on and still putting out your work and still believing in everything, all your ideas and ideals. So yeah, no, I, I, I think... second that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I said it. Yeah, yeah because I think, I, I'm sure you will agree with me, you know, because it's our duty to keep our stage free as much as possible. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, to keep your stage, you know, free is, is really, you really have to struggle. And it is, I don't know, I think it is unfortunate that the regime now in my country afraid of playwrights, afraid of people uh, doing theater, so. Mm. Well, we're going to move on to our final two questions. Which are quite light. (laughs) So since you've been in England, have you taken on any Britishisms? (laughs) Is there anything (laughs) very British uh, that is starting to creep out of you now? (laughs) (laughs) I am not really sure. one time somebody told me, now, oh my God, you're a British government scholar. You are a British, you know, agent in the country and something like that. And I told them, you know what? <laughs> Even when I was a child, I re- I am a sucker of British novels, <laughs> actually. <laughs> British literature, specifically Victorian novels. So yeah. I think that's it. I think that's a, the British uh, uh, thing uh, uh, to me. I don't know, pop culture. Even. <laughs> Yeah. I love Anilinos. I know I love Anilinos. I, I love the Spice Girls, the Beatles. Right. Pop culture, basically the, the, the popular culture, the music culture in the UK. Mm. And then the, the literature, I guess. And um, what would you say the opposite is, the least British thing? <laughs> I don't like riding that true. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, prefer, I, I prefer the bus. Right. <laughs> I'm a bus rider. In this country, but I don't like the tube. And, uh, <laughs> a lot of weird things is happening there, and it's so fast. And the Jubilee line really scares me. Like you know, it's like going to hell. <laughs> the noise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so there. So <laughs> I think this is the least uh, a British uh, <laughs> to me, least Londoner to me. <laughs> oh wait, 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 wait! I think what's the most British about me? is I'm beginning to fall in love with squares and parks. Yes, because everywhere in this country, there is a square or a park. And I love going to park and squares. And I think it's like, it's it's so green. I I don't know. I I think it's part of your culture. Uh, You were designed to think like (laughs) of spaces that way, that there should be a park and then there should be a square where you can just sit down and just look around. So I think that's the most British thing that I got from this country. Your love of squares. Yes. And just to finish, well, obviously you've touched on these quite a few times, but what are your hopes for the future and for the future generation of migrants and even our generation? Well, for the future... Again, it's the hostile environment. I hope the people of this country should wake up to wake up and examine the hostile environment policy. And I think I'm thinking of a future where the younger generation now, they can't afford to buy home, a house, to build a family. 
and to keep a job that will provide them security in the future. Because I remember I'm a Gen X, you know, I am a millennial, actually, I'm a millennial. But I saw what it was before. The dreams of young people were, you can achieve it in just like five to 10 years, getting a house, getting a car, getting a career. And the younger generation now, what I have observed is they don't, they don't have that anymore. Like they can't keep a job. They can't buy a house. They can't pay a rent. They can, but you know, it's, it's really hard for them. So I think this in the future, what I wish is a better future for younger generation that this should be abolished. <laughs> I think that's the word. Yeah. This kind of life created, I think, of a very capitalist mm. world. So people mm. suffer. That's one. And I think short-term goal and personal is like everyone else in this world currently that in December 31st, we're still alive. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I think that's very important. You know, you're in a pandemic and then yeah. we have governments who instead of addressing the pandemic and they're looking on how to make money out from the pandemic. So I think that the goal is at December you know, 31st, 2021, we're still alive. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. yeah. You have been so wonderful to talk to. Thank you so, so much for your time and sharing mm-hmm. and vulnerable with us because it mustn't be easy to relay all your experiences. Um, but I think you will play a huge part in helping these conversations kind mm-hmm. of a wider audience, hopefully, and for mentalities to shift with them. Yes, yes. And hopefully, the I mean, the lockdown is gone two to three months from now so that we can have real theater. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pressing my fingers. For sure. And thank you very much for this. Thank you. Oh, it's our pleasure. Pleasure. To find out more about Rogelio and their work, you can find them on Twitter at Rogelio Braga and visit their website, rogeliobraga.com. To learn more about some of the organizations Rogelio mentions, check out the links in the show notes. You've been listening to Migratives, a podcast produced by Woven Voices. Migratives is created and hosted by Zachary Fall, Ben Weaver-Hinks, and me, Nadia Cavell. Our music is by Guy Hughes, and our artwork is designed by Lucy Stapleton-Smith. To support the podcast, you can rate, review, and subscribe on the platform of your choice. And to find out more about our work, follow Woven Voices on social media, or check out our website, wovenvoices.org.